Good morning. Welcome to Sunday. That's what I like to say. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Dale, and I'm one of the elders at New Life Community Church, which, as we've already heard today, is one church that meets in multiple locations, which is exciting just to say, but also incredibly exciting to have experienced that last weekend. Amen? So this week, we are digging back into our ongoing preaching series, which is rooted in the book of Hebrews, with a look at a section that covers chapter 4, verse 14, to chapter 5, verse 10. And my message this morning is called, Jesus, the Greater High Priest. Now, before we go there, before you start flicking your Bibles and going there, we're going to start somewhere slightly differently, just to be a little bit controversial this morning. Yes. So you don't need to turn there, but we are going to start with Luke chapter 24. And we find a couple of Jesus' disciples chatting together on the road to Emmaus after Jesus' crucifixion. And they're discussing all the things they've seen and heard about Jesus. And they're lamenting, really. They're sad because they're thinking about what they expected of the Messiah. And they're remembering the hopes they had for him. And then, amazingly, Jesus, having been resurrected, joins them in their journey, although they don't recognize him. And he basically says to them, he says, look, it had to happen that way, like the cross, the crucifixion, the death of the Messiah, because that was God's plan. That's, that's basically what he says. And then in verse 27, he gives us this wonderful statement. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus took the whole of the Old Testament and he unpacked it and he highlighted all the ways that that pointed to himself. Now that is an incredible joy and privilege that those guys got to receive that directly from Jesus. But brothers and sisters, I want to remind you this morning that as we look at the book of Hebrews, that is going to do the same thing for us. The book of Hebrews often takes things we find in the Old Testament and shows us how they point to Jesus and are fulfilled in Jesus. Now, as I was preparing for my message today, I was reminded of a trip to London that we recently went on as a family. We were staying in the kind of suburbs outside the city, um, and we had about a 20-minute walk to the train station. And along part of the route that we walked every day, there were some really high like fence posts or, or billboards covering over a huge area of land. And you would struggle to see over those, you know, even if you were taller than me, to be fair. But across all of those fence panels was, was printed a huge but really detailed um, illustration of what was being built on the other side. There were beautiful terraced gardens in this illustration, green spaces, attractive apartments, and some slightly robotic-looking people sipping coffee on their veranda, riding some bikes and kicking a ball about. But it occurred to me that even though I had no idea, really, what was going on the other side in terms of progress, I could understand and see clearly what the intention was. I could get a rough idea of what was happening and what it would look like when it was finished. 
Effectively, it was like a huge signpost telling me what was going to come. And the Old Testament in the Bible works a lot like that for us and for those people who experienced it. Whether you look at the big picture, the grand narrative throughout all the pages of the Old Testament, or if you focus on the individual stories, what you get is an incredibly huge and detailed signpost, a type, a model, a foretaste of what God is building and doing behind the scenes. And as I was preparing this message, I was thinking, maybe there's some of us sat here this morning who have experienced God's word as if looking at a signpost, as if with a fence between you. Yeah, I understand some of what it looks like. I understand some of the picture, but I haven't seen the other side. If that's you this morning, or if you, if you, as we're going through this message, you think, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling like there's something in between. I want you to press into God for that, because I think God wants to break that this morning. God wants to reveal something to you afresh. What Jesus did with those guys on the road to Emmaus, and what the book of Hebrews does for us today, is actually to start taking down some of those fence posts or, or panels. And it starts to reveal the beautiful reality of what God's built and done through Jesus. And you get a sense that although the signpost of the Old Testament is good for us and reveals something about the reality, there's a joy and a call to worship when you set your sights on the reality of God's plans and purposes that have been outworked, revealed, and fulfilled in Jesus. And there's a truth that who Jesus is and what he's done are far greater and ultimately rightly eclipse what's come before. In other words, it shows us how Jesus is not only like a signpost, but he's greater than the signpost. And the author of Hebrews is aware of this as he's writing to Jewish Christians, people who are rooted in the Old Testament scriptures and the priestly sacrifices and practices that God laid out to Moses. And so some of the aim of Hebrews, and certainly my aim this morning, is to show how these Old Testament uh, things point to and are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And in doing so, to show how Jesus is in fact far greater than the things which point to him. So that was an introduction. Now let's get into the text. Hebrews, and I'm going to start with chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. I'll read that for you. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. I wanted to start here because I think this is an excellent description of the Old Testament role of high priest. Firstly, the high priest is chosen and appointed by God from among men. This isn't the role of an angel. It's not the role of any other spiritual type of being. It's the role of a man that God 
has chosen. And you might say to me, well, why is, that, why is that important? What difference does that make? And the reason is because it's this guy's job to represent God's people to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for them. He needs to be made, this guy, this high priest, needs to be made of the same stuff as the people he's looking to represent. He needs to be in their likeness in order that he can properly represent them. In that sense, the role of high priest is like the role of Adam in the Garden of Eden, who represented the whole of mankind. Every person who would ever live was caught up into the being of Adam. We're probably more uh, comfortable and more commonly, we more commonly think about that. The problem is, when Adam sinned, of course, since everyone was caught up into Adam, there was a, a chain of sin and death that was forged that extended from himself and ensnared every person who ever lived subsequently. Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. <clears throat> the priest's job then is to represent the people of God to God and to offer sacrifices for that sin. Now remember, sin is like a barrier between us and God. And the way God chose to deal with that barrier in the Old Testament was through the sacrifice of animals. The sins of the people were counted against the animal. A lamb, which represented innocence and purity. So the animal would die in place of the people. And its blood was exchanged for theirs. The problem we've read about in chapter 5 already is that the high priest was also sinful. right? He had to offer sacrifices for himself as well. On the upside... If he was sinful, he also knew what it was to be tempted. He also knew what it was to fall down and fail. He understood and had experienced temptation and weakness, just like we do. And that means the high priest could deal gently, the Bible says, with both the ignorant, that's the people who don't know any better, i.e., I've accidentally sinned against God and I didn't realize, But he can also deal gently with the wayward. Those are the people that God loves that still mess up. Thank God, I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people that loves God, but I still mess up. And God's provision for that in the Old Testament was to offer sacrifices. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Let's read chapter 4, 14 to 16. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is Jesus. This is, he's not just the high priest, he's the great high priest. Do you get that? He's passed through the heavens. That means he's been raised to life and ascended into the heavenly places. He's in the throne room of God. He's seated at the right hand of God, and he has been exalted in all majesty and power and glory. This is the high priest we have. This is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. This is the high priest we have. And yet, just like all the Old Testament high priests, he's also a man. And this section, four, chapter 4, 14 to 16, picks up a thought that started way back in chapter 2 of Hebrews. I'll read it to you. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those that are being tempted. In the incarnation, God the Son took on flesh. He became like us in every respect. He is fully human. He's made of the same stuff we are, right? And he bears our likeness. And therefore, he can fully and properly represent us to God. And he can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. Because he's been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And that's crucial because it means he can be tempted, but he doesn't share our weaknesses. Unlike us and every other high priest, Jesus never once gave in to temptation, never once sinned. If you think Jesus was around 31, 33 when he was on the cross, he spent his entire life resisting the temptations that we encounter on a daily basis. Never once sinning then ultimately he faced the kind of temptation that we will never know. Yeah? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he faced the prospect of taking on the sin of the entirety of humanity. And yet he did not sin. And that's because by the grace of God, Jesus is also not like us. Remember that chain of sin that comes from Adam to every other human being? Well, God bypassed that chain when he sent Jesus because he sent him as the second and greater Adam. When we're tempted to sin by the devil, this is how it works. We're tempted to sin by the devil and our already sinful hearts rise up and grab hold of that temptation with both hands. And essentially, they make us accomplices to the work of Satan. Have you ever noticed that? When temptation comes your way, something rises up and you go, I want that. Right? That's how it works. 
But Jesus' own heart is free from the sin that's passed to us from Adam. And instead, Jesus only ever desires to do the will of God the Father. When temptation comes his way, nothing rises up in him to meet that and grab it. What rises up in him is, I want to do the will of my Father. John 5, 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This is Jesus telling us, I just do what Dad does. When sin comes my way, I just do what my Heavenly Father does. Jesus remains pure and innocent despite all of the trials and temptations of his life. Although he can sympathize with us in our weakness, he himself never sins. The crazy thing is, Jesus is not only our great high priest that offers the sacrifice for our sins. He is also the sacrifice itself. This is another way he is not like the other high priests. Because Jesus could fully represent us to God, he could die for us. Every person who has ever lived or will ever live caught up into the being of Jesus, the second Adam. And because he was innocent and pure, remember that language, all our sins could be counted against him. And his blood could be spilled in exchange for ours. So we can see that not only is Jesus like the high priests in the Old Testament, he is infinitely greater than them, being not only the one who offers sacrifices, but the sacrifice itself. And as Hebrews 7.27 says, Jesus has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. It's done. That sacrifice is done. Jesus laid his life, spilled his blood for you, for me, one time. That's all it took. He doesn't have to keep going back into the temple to offer those sacrifices. Let's look at chapter 5, verses 5 to 6. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. One quick thing I want to pull out there is some language I absolutely love. Um, the writer to the Hebrews says, as it also says in another place in Scripture. He doesn't say in the letter to da-da-da-da-da. He just says, look, I know it says it in the Bible. I've seen it. There on, I can tell you. I, I work the same way. I can't tell you Bible verses very often. I can just tell you. I know in the Bible it says this. If you give me about 20 minutes, I'll find the exact passage for you. But, you know, be encouraged, those of us who uh, can't remember Scripture in verse Remember what the Word of God says. Immerse yourself in that like the writer to the Hebrews. And then you can say to people, it says somewhere in the Bible. 
probably should offer a little uh, caution against that. You don't get to make stuff up. Just saying that. You don't get to just say, it's there somewhere in the Bible, I'm sure. Right, there are a couple of key points I want to draw out of this section. Firstly, Aaron was the first Israelite high priest. God called him and God appointed him to that office. And then he declared that from Aaron's family line, all future high priests would be appointed. Like Aaron, Jesus was both called and appointed by God to serve in the role of high priest. And he didn't grab at that role. He didn't elevate himself to get it. He didn't step on the backs of others in order to become high priest. There's a lesson there for all of us about responsibility in a godly family. We don't grasp at things. We don't grab at things. We wait for God to call us and then anoint us. Amen? Jesus was also unlike Aaron in that he wasn't descended from Aaron. Remember, God said, Aaron, you're going to be my high priest, and all the high priests are going to come from you. Well, Jesus didn't. He wasn't from Aaron's tribe, the tribe of Levi. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. So then what qualifies Jesus for this position of high priest? Well, Hebrews highlights two reasons here. Two reasons that Jesus isn't just qualified but is greater than Aaron and his line of high priests. Firstly, Jesus is the Son of God. Now that sounds as if, yeah, of course he is, but think about it. He is the second person of the Trinity. And in that sense, there is no one more qualified to outwork and administer God's law than God himself. Do you see that? Jesus is the high priest because he knows God's law inside and out because he is God. That's the first reason. Secondly, Jesus is from a far greater line of high priests that actually predates Aaron's appointment. And it predates actually the whole of the law given at Mount Sinai. Jesus is from the order of high priests that come from Melchizedek. Now, I don't want to spend much time unpacking that to you this morning um, because it will come up again in future preachers, and I don't want to nick material from those guys. But it's enough to say that Melchizedek was greater than Aaron. And therefore, if Jesus is descended from the same line as Melchizedek or from the same, um, what am I trying to say? From the same order, yeah, as Melchizedek, then he too is greater than Aaron. I don't want to dwell too much there. Another important way that Jesus is both like and different to Aaron is that as a high priest, it was also Aaron's job to represent God to the people. Only the high priest could go into the presence of God inside the inner curtain, the most holy of holy places, inside the tabernacle, which was the tent where God manifested his presence to his people. Only the high priest could really inquire of God and receive direction and instruction so that he could inform God's people. Do you see how coming out of that, the the high priest then gets to represent God to the people? He gets to say, God says this. We also see that outworked in the prophets, but in the terms of the sacrificial system, it's Aaron's job or the high priest's job to inquire of God and then to come and give instruction to the people on God's behalf. 
in the incarnation, then, we have the perfect representation of both God and man. The God-man Jesus, who, although like Aaron, is as far too superior to him as the sun is to the moon, actually represents God to us fully. Scripture teaches us that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Nothing of Jesus' deity was lost, taken away, in order that he became man. So therefore, in the incarnation, that marriage, that union between God and man, fully represents God to us, as much as it represents us to God. Verses 7 to 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This closing um, passage of the chapter starts to draw together many of the threads we've already been looking at this morning. The first verse reminds us again of Jesus' ultimate temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he endured the sheer mental and emotional agony of resisting the temptation to either flee from the suffering that was coming or to draw on his power or the legions of angels at his command to bring about a different sequence of events. Those were two plausible options. Those things could have happened if Jesus had been a different person. I often think of Hebrews 12.4 here. It says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It's true, isn't it? It's true in my life. When I resist sin, I, I haven't shed my blood. I haven't, I haven't worked so hard at resisting the temptation of the devil that I've sweated drops of blood or I've laid my life down like Jesus did. But Jesus was so troubled and anxious through that journey that he sweated drops of blood. And more than that, he endured beatings and flogging and ultimately crucifixion all the while resisting the temptation to disobey the will of God the Father. And instead, he resolved to continue to do what he saw his Father doing and to continue to say, not my will be done, but yours. And in doing so, he succeeded where Adam had failed. You know, Adam fell by the first hurdle, the first bit of temptation that came his way. Jesus had his entire life to resist the temptations of the evil one. Jesus understood what obedience to God really looked and felt like through the suffering of his trial and crucifixion. And Scripture says, strangely, that he was made perfect through that suffering. Now, I say strangely because that doesn't really make sense. We think of Jesus, Jesus was perfect. And so what it means here is not that it's not a comment on Jesus' character. Jesus was perfect. But it's a comment on the fact that 
His knowledge of our human condition, his experience of being human was completed and made full in his suffering. Do you understand? Jesus really knew what it was like to be me and you because he suffered to the fullest extent of what that means. So that he could perfectly represent us to God and having, been, and having experienced all of that without sin, he could take on then our sin in our place and he could catch up all of human experience, all of our suffering, all of our sin and all of our death into himself on the cross. So that having paid the price for our failures and having exhausted the wrath of God upon himself, he could become the source of salvation to everyone who through his spirit at work in them would cry to God, not my will be done, but yours. The final thing I want to pick up in this message is from a passage I read in a commentary whilst I was preparing. And it really said, you know, God the Father did answer Jesus' prayers in the garden. Remember Jesus said, if there's any way, just take this cup away from me. He wanted, he wanted salvation. And God the Father answered his prayers, not by saving him from dying, but by saving him from death. Think about that. Through his resurrection... Jesus was raised to an eternal life. He was saved by God from death, but not from dying. And that same hope is available to all of us who proclaim that Jesus is Lord. We will all die, but through resurrection in Jesus, we will be saved from death into eternal life with God. Amen? Amen. And that alone is reason enough for us to worship the one who laid down his life for us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm just going to deli deliver my couple of points of conclusion, and then we're going to have some communion. Chapter 4, verse 16 says, and we've read this already, based on everything that we've looked at this morning, based on everything we've seen and heard and understood, let us then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we face temptation or when we fail, either through ignorance or disobedience, we are not to flee from the presence of God. You get that? We're not to run away from God when we screw up. On the contrary, by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus the Messiah, our great high priest, we are, enter, are to enter into the throne room of God, where we will find the one who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And at his feet, we will find grace, not judgment. We can call upon his strength as the one who has overcome all temptation and sin to guard us, to give us victory over our own, our very own sinful hearts. And we can be sure and certain that he will help us in our time of need. We're going to take communion in a minute. But I wonder as we, as we do a worship song before that, why don't you take a minute and think, do I need to come to the throne of grace this morning? Do I need to receive mercy 
instead of judgment? Do I need to come before my heavenly father and ask for forgiveness and receive that grace, that undeserved favor for the times I've messed up? Chapter 4, verse 14 says, based on everything we've looked at and heard and understood this morning, let us hold fast our confession. When we look at the Old Testament role of high priest and we see how Jesus not only fulfills but exceeds that role, it strengthens and secures our conviction of the gospel. As our representative Jesus lived a sinless life we couldn't. As our sacrifice, he died the death that we deserve. And as our saviour, he secured the hope that we cling to. And when we face moments of trial and testing and temptation, we need to hold fast, cling on to, grab with both hands the gospel truths that we've heard this morning. And we need to allow them to inform and remind us of the reality of what Jesus has accomplished. So that our hope in him and in his faithfulness and his love towards us becomes a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. I'm going to break bread. Thank you, mate. Jesus said this, knowing the sacrifice that he was about to make, he said, this is my body. And he broke it. And he said, this is broken for you. All your sins, all of the things that you've done that cause a barrier between you and God, they are forgiven because of his broken body and the blood that he spilled. So we're gonna, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to have a worship song. We're going to prepare our hearts to take this wonderful meal that reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to do that together, and Carl's going to lead us in that after we've worshipped. Okay? Just stand with me. Thank you, mate. I'm going to pray, and then we'll worship. Is that okay? King Jesus, thank you that you have stirred our hearts this morning as we have heard about your role as high priest, great high priest. Thank you that you are the one who can sympathize with our weaknesses and yet not be overcome by them. Thank you that you have had victory over all the temptations that might come my way. Thank you that I can come to you and find strength to fight those temptations and to cry out, not my will be done, but yours. Thank you that even when I do mess up, I can come to your throne. I can find grace. I can find mercy and forgiveness and I can find relationship with you Lord Jesus I pray that as we come to take this communion meal as we come to remember your glorious gospel and the wonderful good news that it is to each of us I pray God that we would make ourselves right with you I pray that we would have our hearts stirred to love and affection for you and for one another I pray Lord minister to us through your wonderful sacrament of this meal be glorified amongst us, I pray in Jesus' name.